Chapter Four, Part One of Autobiography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Gilbert. Autobiography by John Stuart Mill. Chapter Four, Youthful Propagandism. The Westminster Review, Part One. The occupation of so much of my time by office work did not relax my attention to my own pursuits, which were never carried on more vigorously. It was about this time that I began to write in newspapers. The first writings of mine which got into print were two letters published towards the end of 1822 in the Traveller Evening Newspaper. The Traveller, which afterwards grew into the Globe and Traveller, by the purchase and incorporation of the Globe, was then the property of the well-known political economist Colonel Torrance, and under the editorship of an able man, Mr. Walter Colson, who after being an amanuensis of Mr. Bentham became a reporter, then an editor, next a barrister and conveyancer, and died counsel to the home office it had become one of the most important newspaper organs of liberal politics colonel torrens himself wrote much of the political economy of his paper and had at this time made an attack upon some opinions of ricardo and my father to which at my father's instigation i attempted an answer and colson out of consideration for my father and goodwill to me inserted it there was a reply by torrens to which i again rejoined i soon after attempted something considerably more ambitious the prosecutions of richard carlyle and his wife and sister for publications hostile to christianity were then exciting much attention and nowhere more than among the people i frequented freedom of discussion even in politics much more in religion was at that time far from being even in theory the conceited point which it at least seems to be now and the holders of obnoxious opinions had to be always ready to argue and re-argue for the liberty of expressing them i wrote a series of five letters under the signature of wycliffe going over the whole length and breadth of the question of free publication of all opinions on religion and offered them to the morning chronicle three of them were published in january and february eighteen twenty three the other two containing things too outspoken for that journal never appeared at all a debate in the house of commons was inserted as a leading article and during the whole of this year eighteen twenty three a considerable number of my contributions were printed in the Chronicle and Traveller. Sometimes notices of books, but oftener letters, commenting on some nonsense talked in Parliament, or some other defect of the law, or misdoings of the magistracy of the courts of justice. In this last department, the Chronicle was now rendering single service. After the death of Mr. Perry, the editorship and management of the paper had devolved on Mr. John Black, long a reporter on its establishment, a man of most extreme reading and information. 
great honesty and simplicity of mind a particular friend of my father imbued with many of his and bentham's ideas which he reproduced in his articles among other valuable thoughts with great facility and skill from this time the chronicle ceased to be the merely whig organ it was before and during the next ten years became to a considerable extent a vehicle of the opinions of the utilitarian radicals this was mainly by what black himself wrote with some assistance from von bloch who first showed his eminent qualities as a writer by articles and judi esprit in the chronicle the defects of the law and of the administration of justice were the subject on which that paper rendered most service to improvement up to that time hardly a word has been said except by bentham and my father against the most peccant part of english institutions and of their administration it was the almost universal creed of establishment that the law of england the judicature of england the unpaid magistracy of england were models of excellence i do not go beyond the mark in saying that after bentham who supplied the principal materials the greatest share of the merit of breaking down this wretched superstition belongs to black as editor of the morning chronicle he kept up an incessant fire against it exposing the absurdities and vices of the law and the course of justice paid and unpaid until he forced some sense of them into the people's minds on many other questions he became the organ of opinions much in advance of any which had ever before found regular advocacy in the newspaper press black was a frequent visitor of my father and mr grote used to say that he always knew by the monday morning's article whether black had been with my father on the sunday black was one of the most influential of the many channels through which my father's conversation and personal influence made his opinions tell on the world operating with the effect of his writings in making him a power to the country such as it has rarely been the lot of an individual in a private station to be through the mere force of intellect and character and a power which was often acting the most efficiently where it was least seen and suspected i have already noticed how much of it was done by ricardo hume and grote was the result in part of his prompting and persuasion he was the good genius by the side of brahm in most of what he did for the public either on education law reform or any other subject and his influence flowed in minor streams too numerous to be specified this influence was now about to receive a great extension by the foundation of the westminster review contrary to what may have been supposed my father was in no degree a party to setting up the westminster review the need of a radical organ to make head against the edinburgh and quarterly then in the period of their greatest reputation and influence had been a topic of conversation between him and mr bentham many years earlier and it had been a part of their chateau in espagne that my father should be the editor but the idea never assumed any practical shape in eighteen twenty three however mr bentham determined to establish the review at his own cost and offered the editorship to my father who declined it as 
incompatible with his India House appointment. It was then entrusted to Mr. now Sir John Bowring, at that time a merchant in the city. Mr. Bowring had been for two or three years previous an assiduous frequenter of Mr. Bentham, to whom he was recommended by many personal good qualities, by an ardent admiration for Bentham, a zealous adoption of many, though not all, of his opinions, and, not least, by an extensive acquaintanceship and correspondence with liberals of all countries, which seemed to qualify him for being a powerful agent in spreading Bentham's fame and doctrines through all quarters of the world. My father had seen little of Bowring, but knew enough of him to have formed a strong opinion that he was a man of an entirely different type from what my father considered suitable for conducting a political and philosophical review. And he augured so ill of the enterprise that he regretted it altogether, feeling persuaded not only that Mr. Bentham would lose his money, but that discredit would probably be brought upon radical principles. He could not, however, desert Mr. Bentham, and he consented to write an article for the first number, as it had been a favorite portion of the scheme formerly talked of, that part of the work should be devoted to reviewing the other reviews. This article of my father's was to be a general criticism of the Edinburgh Review from its commencement. Before writing it, he made me read through all the volumes of the review, or as much of each as seemed of any importance, which was not so arduous a task in 1823 as it would be now, and make notes for him of the articles which I thought he would wish to examine, either on account of their good or their bad qualities. This paper of my father's was the chief cause of the sensation which the Westminster Review produced at its first appearance, and is, both in conception and in execution, one of the most striking of all his writings. He began by an analysis of the tendencies of periodical literature in general, pointing out that it cannot, like books, wait for success, but must succeed immediately or not at all and is hence almost certain to profess and inculcate the opinions already held by the public to which it addresses itself, instead of attempting to rectify or improve those opinions. He next, to characterize the position of the Edinburgh Review as a political organ, entered into a complete analysis, from the radical point of view, of the British Constitution. He held up to notice its thoroughly aristocratic character, the nomination of a majority of the House of Commons by a few hundred families, the entire identification of the more in the country members with the great landholders, the different classes whom this narrow oligarchy was induced for convenience to admit to a share of power, and finally what he called its two props, the church and the legal profession. He pointed out the natural tendency of an aristocratic body of this composition to group itself into two parties, one of them in possession of the executive, the other endeavoring to supplant the former and become the predominant section by the aid of public opinion, without any essential sacrifice of the aristocratical predominance. He described the course likely to be pursued and the political ground occupied by an aristocratic party in opposition coquetting with popular principles for the sake of popular support. 
he showed how this idea was realized in the conduct of the whig party and of the edinburgh review as its chief literary organ he described as their main characteristic what he termed seesaw writing alternatively on both sides of the question which touched the power or interest of the governing classes sometimes in different articles sometimes in different parts of the same article and illustrated his position by copious specimens so formidable an attack on the whig party and policy had never before been made nor had so great a blow ever been struck in this country for to radicalism nor was there i believe any living person capable of writing that article except my father begin footnote the continuation of this article in the second number of the review was written by me under my father's eye and except as practice in composition in which respect it was to me more useful than anything else i ever wrote was of little or no value End footnote. in the meantime the nascent review had formed a junction with another project of a purely literary periodical to be edited by mr henry southern afterwards a diplomatist then a literary man by profession the two editors agreed to unite their corps and divide the editorship bowring taking the political southern the literary department southern's review was to have been published by longman and that firm though part proprietors of the edinburgh were willing to be the publishers of the new journal but when all the arrangements had been made and the prospectus sent out longman's saw my father's attack on the edinburgh and drew back my father was now appealed to for his interest with his own publisher baldwin which was exerted with a successful result and so in april eighteen twenty four amidst anything but hope on my father's part and that of the most of those who afterwards aided in carrying out the review the first number made its appearance that number was an agreeable surprise to most of us the average of the articles was of much better quality than had been expected the literary and artistic department had rested chiefly on mr bingham a barrister subsequently a police magistrate who had been for some years a frequenter of bentham was a friend of both the austins and had adopted with great ardour mr bentham's philosophical opinions partly from accident there were in the first number as many as five articles by bingham and we were extremely pleased with them i well remember the mixed feeling i myself had about the review the joy of finding what we did not at all expect that it was sufficiently good to be capable of being made a creditable organ of those who held the opinions it professed and extreme vexation since it was so good on the whole at what we thought the blemishes of it when however in addition to our generally favourable opinion of it we learned that it had an extraordinary large sale for a first number and found that the appearance of a radical review with pretensions equal to those of the established organs of parties had excited much attention there could be no room for hesitation and we all became eager in doing everything we could to strengthen and improve it my father continued to write occasional articles the quarterly review received its exposure as a sequel to that of the edinburgh of his other contributions 
the most important were an attack on southley's book of the church in the fifth number and a political article in the twelfth mr austin only contributed one paper but one of great merit an argument against primogeniture in reply to an article then lately published in the edinburgh review by mccullough grote also was a contributor only once all the time he could spare being already taken up with his history of greece the article he wrote was on his own subject and was a very complete exposure and castigation of mitford bingham and charles austin continued to write for some time von bloch was a frequent contributor from the third number of my particular associates ellis was a regular writer up to the ninth number and about the time when he left off others of the set began eaton took graham and roebuck i was myself the most frequent writer of all having contributed from the second number to the eighteenth thirteen articles reviews of books on history and political economy or discussions on special political topics as corn laws game laws laws of libel occasional articles of merit came in from other acquaintances of my father's and in time of mine and some of mr bowring's writers turned out well on the whole however the conduct of the review was never satisfactory to any of the persons strongly interested in its principles with whom i came in contact hardly ever did a number come out without containing several things extremely offensive to us either in points of opinion of taste or by mere want of ability the unfavourable judgments passed by my father grote the two austins and others were re-echoed with exaggeration by us younger people and as our youthful zeal rendered us by no means backward in making complaints we led the two editors a sad life from my knowledge of what i then was i have no doubt that we were at least as often wrong as right and i am very certain that if the review had been carried on according to our notions i mean those of the juniors it would have been no better perhaps not even as good as it was but it is worth noting as a fact in the history of benthamism that the periodical organ by which it was best known was from the first extremely unsatisfactory to those whose opinions on all subjects it was supposed specially to represent meanwhile however the review made considerable noise in the world and gave a recognized status in the area of opinion and discussion to the benthamic type of radicalism out of all proportion to the number of its adherents and to the personal merits and abilities at that time of most of those who could be reckoned among them it was a time as is known of rapidly rising liberalism when the fears and animosities accompanying the war with france had been brought to an end and people had once more a place in their thoughts for home politics the tide began to set towards reform the renewed oppression of the continent by the old reigning families the continents apparently given by the english government to the conspiracy against liberty called the holy alliance and the enormous weight of the national debt and taxation occasioned by so long and costly a war rendered the government and parliament very unpopular radicalism under the leadership of the burdettes and coberts had assumed a character and importance which seriously alarmed the administration 
and their alarm had scarcely been temporarily assuaged by the celebrated six acts when the trial of queen caroline roused a still wider and deeper feeling of hatred though the outward signs of this hatred passed away with its exciting cause there arose on all sides a spirit which had never shown itself before of opposition to abuse in detail mr hume's persevering scrutiny of the public expenditure forcing the house of commons to a division on every objectionable item in the estimates had begun to tell with great force on public opinion and had exhorted many minor retrenchments from an unwilling administration political economy had asserted itself with great vigour in public affairs by the petition of the merchants of london for free trade drawn up in eighteen twenty by mr tooke and presented by mr alexander baring and by the noble exertions of ricardo during the few years of his parliamentary life his writings followed up the impulse given by the bouillon controversy and followed up in their turn by the expositions and comments of my father and mccullough whose writings in the edinburgh review during these years were most valuable had drawn general attention to the subject making at least partial converts of the cabinet itself and huskinson supported by canning and commenced that gradual demolition of the protective system which one of their colleagues virtually completed in eighteen forty six though the vast vestiges were only swept away by mr gladstone in eighteen sixty mr peel then home secretary was entering cautiously into the untrodden and peculiar benthamic path of law reform at this period when liberalism seemed to be becoming the tone of the time when improvement of institutions was preached from the highest places and a complete change of the constitution of parliament was loudly demanded in the lowest it is not strange that attention should have been roused by the regular appearance in controversy of what seemed a new school of writers claiming to be the legislators and theorists of this new tendency the air of strong conviction with which they wrote when scarcely any one else seemed to have an equally strong faith in as definite a creed the boldness with which they tilted against the very front of both the existing political parties and their uncompromising profession of opposition to many of the generally received opinions and the suspicion they lay under of holding others still more heterodox that they professed the talent and verve of at least my father's articles and the appearance of a corps behind him sufficient to carry on a review and finally the fact that the review was bought and read made the so-called bentham school in philosophy and politics fill a greater place in the public mind than it had held before or has ever again held since other equally earnest schools of thought have arisen in england as i was in the headquarters of it knew of what it was composed and as one of the most active of its very small number might say without undue assumption quorum pa magna fui it belongs to me more than to most others to give some account of it
this supposed school then had no other existence than what was constituted by the fact that my father's writings and conversation drew around him a certain number of young men who had already imbibed or who imbibed from him a greater or smaller portion of his very decided political and philosophical opinions the notion that bentham was surrounded by a band of disciples who received their opinions from his lips is a fable to which my father did justice in his fragment on mackintosh and which to all who knew mr bentham's habits of life and manner of conversation is simply ridiculous the influence which bentham exercised by his writings through them he has produced and is producing effects on the condition of mankind wider and deeper no doubt than any which can be attributed to my father he is a much greater name in history but my father exercised a far greater personal ascendancy he was sought for the vigour and instructiveness of his conversation and did use it largely as an instrument for the diffusion of his opinions i have never known any man who could do such ample justice to his best thoughts in colloquial discussion his perfect command over his great mental resources the terseness and expressiveness of his language the moral earnestness as well as intellectual force of his delivery made him one of the most striking of all argumentative conversers and he was full of anecdote a hearty laughter and when with people whom he liked a most lively and amusing companion it was not solely or even chiefly in diffusing his merely intellectual convictions that his power showed itself it was still more through the influence of a quality of which i have only since learnt to appreciate the extreme rarity that exalted public spirit and regarded above all things to the good of the whole which warmed into life and activity every germ of a similar virtue that existed in the minds he came in contact with the desire he made them feel for his approbation the shame at his disapproval the moral support which his conversation and his very existence gave to those who were aiming at the same objects and the encouragement he afforded to the faint-hearted or desponding among them by the firm confidence which though the reverse of sanguine as to the results to be expected in any one particular case he always felt in the power of reason the general progress of improvement and the good which individuals could do by judicious effort end of chapter four youthful propagandism the westminster review part one recording by gary gilbert Chapter Four, Part Two of Autobiography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Kilbird. Autobiography by John Stuart Mill. Chapter Four, Youthful Propagandism, The Westminster Review. Part two. It was my father's opinions which gave the distinguishing character to the Benthamic or utilitarian propagandism of that time. They fell, singularly, scattered from him in many directions, but they flowed from him in a continued stream 
principally in three channels. One was through me, the only mind directly formed by his instruction, and through whom considerable influence was excited over various young men, who became in their turn propagandists. A second was through some of the Cambridge contemporaries of Charles Austin, who either initiated by him, or under the gentle mental impulse which he gave, had adopted many opinions allied to those of my father, and some of the more considerable of whom afterwards sought my father's acquaintance, and frequented his house. Among these may be mentioned Strutt, afterwards Lord Belper, and the present Lord Romley, with whose eminent father, Sir Samuel, my father, had of old been on terms of friendship. The third channel was that of a younger generation of Cambridge undergraduates, contemporary, not with Austin, but with Elton Took, who were drawn to that estimable person by affinity of opinions, and introduced to him by my father. The most notable of these was Charles Buller, Various other persons individually received and transmitted a considerable amount of my father's influence, for example, Black, as before mentioned, and Fun Black. Most of these, however, were accounted only partial allies. Fun Black, for instance, was always divergent from us on many important points. But, indeed, there was by no means complete unanimity among any portion of us, nor had any of us adopted implicitly all of my father's opinions. For example, although his Essay on Government was regarded probably by all of us as a masterpiece of political wisdom, our adhesion by no means extended to the paragraph of it in which he maintains that women may, consistently with good government, be excluded from the suffrage, because their interest is the same as that of men. From this doctrine I, and all those who formed my chosen associates, most positively dissented. It is due to my father to say that he denied having intended to affirm that women should be excluded any more than men under the age of forty, concerning whom he maintained in the very next paragraph an exactly similar thesis. He was, as he truly said, not discussing whether the suffrage had better be restricted, but only, assuming that it is to be restricted, what is the utmost limit of restriction which does not necessarily involve a sacrifice of the securities for good government. But I thought then, and I have always thought since, that the opinion which he acknowledged, no less than that which he disclaimed, is as great an error as any of those against which the essay was directed that the interest of women is included in that of men exactly as much as the interest of subjects is included in that of kings, and no more, and that every reason which exists for giving the suffrage to anybody demands that it should not be withheld from women. This was also the general opinion of the younger proselytes, and it is pleasant to be able to say that Mr. Bentham, on this important point, was wholly on our side. But though none of us, probably, agreed in every respect with my father, his opinions, as I have said before, were the principal element which gave its color and character to the little group of young men who were the first propagandors of what was afterwards called philosophic radicalism. Their mode of thinking was not characterized by Benthamism in any sense which was 
relation to Bentham as a chief or guide, but rather by a combination of Bentham's point of view with that of the modern political economy, and with the Hartleian metaphysics. Malthus' population principle was quite as much a banner and point of union among us as any opinion, especially belonging to Bentham. This great doctrine originally brought forward as an argument against the indefinite improvability of human affairs, we took up with an ardent zeal in the contrary sense, as indicating the sole means of realizing that improvability by securing full employment at high wages to the whole laboring population through a voluntary restriction of the increase of their numbers. The other leading characteristic of the creed, which we held in common with my father, may be stated as follows. In politics an almost unbounded confidence in the efficacy of two things, representative government and complete freedom of discussion. So complete was my father's reliance on the influence of reason over the minds of mankind, whenever it is allowed to reach them, that he felt as if all would be gained if the whole population were taught to read, if all sorts of opinions were allowed to be addressed to them by word and in writing, and if by means of the suffrage they could nominate a legislature to give effect to the opinions they adopted. He thought that when the legislature no longer represented a class interest, it would aim at the general interest, honestly and with adequate wisdom, since the people would be sufficiently under the guidance of educated intelligence to make in general a good choice of persons to represent them, and having done so, to leave it to those whom they had chosen a liberal discretion. Accordingly, aristocratic rule, the government of the few in any of its shapes, being in his eyes the only thing which stood between mankind and an administration of their affairs by the best wisdom to be found among them, was the object of his sternest disapprobation, and a democratic suffrage the principal article of his political creed, not on the ground of liberty, rights of man, or any of the phrases more or less significant by which up to that time democracy had usually been defended, but as the most essential of securities for good government. In this, too, he held fast only to what he deemed essentials. He was comparatively indifferent to monarchical or republican forms, far more so than Bentham, to whom a king in the character of corrupter general appeared necessarily very obnoxious. Next to the aristocracy, an established church or corporation of priests, as being by position the great depravers of religion, and interested in opposing the progress of the human mind was the object of his greatest detestation though he disliked no clergyman personally who did not deserve it and he was on terms of sincere friendship with several in ethics his moral feelings were energetic and rapid on all points which he deemed important to human well-being while he was supremely indifferent in opinion though his indifference did not show itself in personal conduct, to all those doctrines of the common morality, which he thought had no foundation but in asceticism and priestcraft. He looked forward, for example, to a considerable increase of freedom in the relations between the sexes, though without pretending to define exactly what would be, or ought to be, the precise condition of that freedom. His opinion was connected in him 
with no sensuality either of a theoretical or of a practical kind. He anticipated, on the contrary, as one of the beneficial effects of increased freedom, that the imagination would no longer dwell upon the principal objects of life, a perversion of the imagination and feelings, which he regarded as one of the deepest-seated and most pervading evils in the human mind. In psychology, his fundamental doctrine was the formation of all human character by circumstances, through the universal principle of association and the consequent unlimited possibility of improving the moral and intellectual condition of mankind by education. Of all his doctrines, none was more important than this, or needs more to be insisted on. Unfortunately, there is none which is more contradictory to the prevailing tendencies of speculation, both in his time and since. These various opinions were seized upon with youthful fanaticism by the little knot of young men of whom I was one, and we put into them a secular spirit from which, in intention at least, my father was wholly free. What we, or rather a phantom substituted in the place of us, were sometimes, by a ridiculous exaggeration, called by others, namely a school, some of us for a time really hoped and aspired to me. The French philosophies of the eighteenth century were the examples we sought to imitate, and we hoped to accomplish no less result. No one of us went in so great excesses in his boyish ambition as I did, which might be shown by many particulars were it not for a useless waste of space and time. All this, however, is probably only the outside of our existence, or at least the intellectual part alone, and no part than one side of that. In attempting to penetrate inward, and give any indication of what we were as human beings, I must be understood as speaking only of myself, of whom alone I can speak from sufficient knowledge, and I do not believe that the picture would suit any of my companions without many and great modifications. I conceive that the description so often given of a Benthamite as a mere reasoning machine, though extremely inapplicable to most of those who have been designated by that title, was, during two or three years of my life, not altogether untrue of me. It was perhaps as applicable to me as it can well be to anyone just entering into life, to whom the common objects of desire must in general have at least the attraction of novelty. There is nothing very extraordinary in this fact. No youth of the age I then was can be expected to be more than one thing, and this was the thing I happened to be. Ambition and desire of distinction I had in abundance and zeal for what I thought the good of mankind was my strongest sentiment, mixing with and colouring all others. But my zeal was as yet little else, at that period of my life, than zeal for speculative opinions. It had not its root in genuine benevolence or sympathy with mankind, though these qualities had their due place in my ethical standard nor was it connected with any high enthusiasm for ideal nobleness. Yet of this feeling I was imaginatively very susceptible, but there was at that time an intermission of its natural ailment, poetical culture, while there was a superabundance 
of the discipline antagonistic to it that of mere logic and analysis add to this that as already mentioned my father's teachings tended to the undervaluing of feeling it was not that he was himself cold-hearted or insensible i believe it was rather from the contrary quality he thought that feeling could take care of itself that there was sure to be enough of it if actions were properly cared about offended by the frequency with which in ethical and philosophical controversies feeling is made the ultimate reason and justification of conduct instead of being itself called in for a justification while in practice actions the effect of which on human happiness is mischievous are defended as being required by feeling and the character of a person of feeling obtains a credit for desert which he thought only due to actions he had a real impatience of attributing praise to feeling or to any but the most sparing reference to it either in the estimation of persons or in the discussion of things in addition to the influence which this characteristic in him had on me and others we found all the opinions to which we attained most importance consistently attacked on the ground of feeling utility was denounced as cold calculation political economy as hard-hearted anti-population doctrines as repulsive to the natural feelings of mankind we retorted by the word sentimentality which along with declamation and vague generalities served us as common items of approbation although we were generally in the right as against those who were opposed to us the effect was that of the cultivation of feeling except the feelings of public and private duty was not in much esteem among us and had very little place in the thoughts of most of us myself in particular what we particularly thought of was to alter people's opinions to make them believe according to evidence and to know what was their real interest which when they once knew they would we thought by the instruments of opinion enforce a regard to it upon one another while fully recognizing the superior excellence of unselfish benevolence and love of justice we did not expect the regeneration of mankind from any direct action on those sentiments but from the effect of educated intellect enlightening the selfish feelings although this last is prodigiously important as a means of improvement in the hands of those who are themselves impelled by nobler principles of action i do not believe that any one of the survivors of the benthamites or utilitarians of that day now relies mainly upon it to the general amendment of human conduct from this neglect both in theory and in practice of the cultivation of feeling naturally resulted among other things an undervaluing of poetry and of imagination generally as an element of human nature it is or was part of the popular notion of the benthamites that they are enemies of poetry this was partly true of bentham himself he used to say that all poetry is misrepresentation but in the sense in which he said it the same might have been said of all impressive speech of all representation or inclusion more oratorical in its character than a sum in arithmetic an article of bentham's 
in the first number of the Westminster Review, in which he offered as an explanation of something which he disliked in Moore, that Mr. Moore is a poet, and therefore is not a reasoner, did a good deal to attach the notion of hating poetry to the writers of the review. But the truth was that many of us were great readers of poetry. Bingham himself had been a writer of it, while as regards me, and the same thing might be said of my father, the correct statement would be, not that I disliked poetry, but that I was theoretically indifferent to it. I disliked any sentiments in poetry which I should have disliked in prose, and that included a great deal and I was wholly blind to its place in human culture as a means of educating the feelings, but I was personally very susceptible to some kinds of it in the most sectarian period of my Benthamism. I happened to look into Pope's Essay on Man, and though every opinion in it was contrary to mine, I well remembered how powerfully it acted on my imagination perhaps at the time poetical composition of any higher type than eloquent discussion in verse might not have produced a similar effect upon me at all events i seldom gave it an opportunity this however was a mere passive state long before i had enlarged in any considerable degree the basis of my intellectual creed i had obtained in the natural course of my mental progress poetic culture of the most valuable kind by means of reverential admiration for the lives and characters of heroic persons especially the heroes of philosophy the same inspiring effect which so many of the benefactors of mankind have left on record that they had experienced from plutarch's lives was produced on me by plato's pictures of socrates and by some modern biographers above all condorcet's life of turgot a book well calculated to rouse the best sort of enthusiasm, since it contains one of the wisest and noblest of lives, delineated by one of the wisest and noblest of men. The heroic virtue of these glorious representatives of the opinions with which I sympathized deeply affected me, and I perpetually recurred to them as others do to a favorite poet, when, needing to be carried up into the more elevated regions of feeling and thought, I may observe, by the way, that this book cured me of my sectarian follies. The two or three pages beginning, Il regarde trate secte comme nuisible, and explaining why Turgot always kept himself perfectly distinct from the encyclopedists, sank deeply into my mind. I left off designating myself and others as utilitarians, and by the pronoun we or any other collective designation i ceased to affecture sectarianism my real inward sectarianism i did not get rid of till later and much more gradually by the end of eighteen twenty four beginning of eighteen twenty five mr bentham having lately got back his papers on evidence from m dumont whose traite de perdis judiciaires grounded on them, was then first completed and published. Resolved to have them printed in the original, and bethought himself of me as capable of preparing them for the press, in the same manner as his Book of Fallacies, had been recently edited by Bingham. I gladly undertook this task, and it occupied nearly all my leisure for about a year, exclusive of the time afterwards spent in seeing the five large volumes through the press Mr. Bentham 
had begun the treatise three times at considerable intervals each time in a different manner and each time without reference to the preceding two of the three times he had gone over nearly the whole subject these three masses of manuscript it was my business to condense into a single treatise adapting the one last written as the groundwork and incorporating with it as much of the two others as it had not completely superseded i had also to unroll such of bentham's involved and parenthetical sentences as seemed to overpass by their complexity the measure of what readers were likely to take the pains to understand it was further mr bentham's particular desire that i should from myself endeavour to supply any lacunae which he had left and at his insistence i read for this purpose the most authoritative treatise on the english law of evidence and commented on a few of the objectionable points of the english rules which had escaped bentham's notice i also replied to the objections which had been made to some of his doctrines by reviewers of dumas book and added a few supplementary remarks on some of the more abstract parts of the subject such as the theory of improbability and impossibility the controversial part of these editorial editions was written in a more assuming tone than became one so young and inexperienced as i was but indeed i had never contemplated coming forward in my own person and as an anonymous editor of bentham i fell into the tone of my author not thinking it unsuitable to him or to the subjects however it might be so to me my name as editor was put to the book after it was printed mr bentham's positive desire which i in vain attempted to persuade him to forego the time occupied in this editorial work was extremely well employed in respect to my own improvement the rationale of judicial evidence is one of the richest in matter of all bentham's productions the theory of evidence being in itself one of the most important of his subjects and ramifying into most of the others the book contains very fully developed a great proportion of his best thoughts while among more special things it comprises the most elaborate exposure of the vices and defects of english law as it then was which is to be found in his works not confined to the law of evidence but including by way of illustrative episode the entire procedure or practice of westminster hall the direct knowledge therefore which i obtained from the book and which was imprinted upon me much more thoroughly than it could have been by mere reading was itself no small acquisition but this occupation did for me what might seem less to be expected it gave a great start to my powers of composition everything which i wrote subsequently to this editorial employment was markedly superior to anything that i had written before it bentham's later style as the world knows was heavy and cumbersome from the excess of a good quality the love of precision which made him introduce clause within clause into the heart of every sentence that the reader might receive into his mind the modifications and qualifications simultaneously with the main proposition and the habit grew on him until his sentences became to those not accustomed to them most laborious reading but his earlier style that of the fragment on government plan of a judicial establishment etc is a model of liveliness and 
ease combined with fullness of matter scarcely ever surpassed and of his earlier style there was mainly striking specimens in the manuscripts on evidence all of which i endeavoured to preserve so long a course of this admirable writing had a considerable effect upon my own and i added to it by the assiduous reading of other writers both french and english who combined in a remarkable degree ease with force such as goldsmith fielding pascal voltaire and courier through these influences my writing lost the jejuneness of my early compositions the bones and cartilage began to clothe themselves with flesh, and the style became at times lively and almost light. End of chapter 4, part 2, recording by Gary Gilbert. Chapter 4, part 3 of Autobiography. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gary Gilbert. Autobiography by John Stuart Mill Chapter 4 Youthful Propagandism The Westminster Review Part 3 This improvement was first exhibited in a new field. Mr. Marshall of Leeds, father of the present generation of Marshalls, the same who was brought into Parliament for Yorkshire when the representation forfeited by Grampound was transferred to it an earnest parliamentary reformer and a man of large fortune of which he made a liberal use had been much struck with benjamin's book of fallacies and the thought had occurred to him that it would be useful to publish annually the parliamentary debates not in the chronological order of hansard but classified according to subjects and accompanied by a commentary pointing out the fallacies of the speakers with this intention he very naturally addressed himself to the editor of the book of fallacies and bingham with the assistance of charles austin undertook the editorship the work was called parliamentary history and review its sale was not sufficient to keep it existent and it only lasted three years it excited however some attention among parliamentary and political people the best strength of the party was to put forth in it and its execution did them much more credit than that of the washington review had ever done brigham and charles austin wrote much of it as did strutt romney and several other liberal lawyers my father wrote one such article in his best style the elder austin another colson wrote one of great merit it fell to my lot to lead off the first number by an article on the principal topic of the session that of eighteen twenty five the catholic association and the catholic disabilities in the second number i wrote an eloquent essay on the commercial crisis of eighteen twenty five and the currency debates in the third i had two articles one on a minor subject the other on the reciprocity principle in commerce a propos of a celebrated diplomatic correspondence between canning and galayton these writings were no longer mere reproductions and applications of the doctrines i had been taught they were original thinking as far as that name can be applied to old ideas in new forms and convections.
I do not exceed the truth in saying that there was a maturity and a well-digested character about them, which there had not been in any of my previous performances. In execution, therefore, they were not at all juvenile, but their subjects have either gone by or have been so much better treated since that they are entirely superseded, and should remain buried in the same oblivion with my contributions to the first dynasty of the Westminster Review. While thus engaged in writing for the public, I did not neglect other modes of self-cultivation. It was at this time that I learnt German, beginning it on the Hamiltonian method, for which purpose I and several of my companions formed a class. For several years from this period, our social studies assumed a shape which contributed very much to my mental progress. The idea occurred to us of carrying on, by reading and conversation, a joint study of several of the branches of science which we wished to be masters of. We assembled to the number of a dozen or more. Mr. Grote let a room in his house in Threadneedle Street for the purpose, and his partner Prescott, one of the three original members of the Utilitarian Society, made one among us. We met two mornings in every week from half-past eight till ten, at which hour most of us were called off to our daily occupations. Our first subject was political economy. We chose some systematic treatise as our textbook, my father's elements being our first choice. One of us read aloud a chapter or some smaller portion of the book. The discussion was then opened up, and every one who had objection or other remark to make, made it. Our rule was to discuss thoroughly every point raised, whether great or small, prolonging the discussion until all who took part were satisfied with the conclusion they had individually arrived at, and to follow up every topic of collateral speculation which the chapter or the conversation suggested, never leaving it until we had untied every knot which we found. We repeatedly kept up the discussion of some one point for several weeks thinking intently on it until the interval of our meetings and contriving solutions of the new difficulties which had risen up in the last morning's discussion. When we had finished in this way my father's elements, we went in the same manner through Ricardo's Principles of Political Economy and Bailey's Dissertation on Value. These close and vigorous discussions were not only improving on a high degree to those who took part in them, but brought out new views of some topics of abstract political economy. The theory of the international values, which I had afterwards published, emanated from these conversations, as did also the modified form of Ricardo's theory of profits, laid down in my Essay on Profits and Interest. Those among us, with whom new speculations chiefly originated, were Ellis, Graham, and I, though others gave great aid to the discussion, especially Prescott and Roebuck, the one by his knowledge, the other by his dialectical acuteness. The theories of international values and of profits were excognated and worked out in about equal proportions by myself and Graham, and if our original project had been executed, my essays on some unsettled questions of political economy would have been brought out along with some papers of his under our joint names. But when my exposition came to be written, I found that I had so much 
overestimated my agreement with him and he dissented so much from the most original of the two essays that on international values that i was obliged to consider the theory as now exclusively mine and it came out as such when published many years later i may mention that among the alterations which my father made in revising his elements for the third edition several were founded on criticisms elicited by these conversations and particularly he modified his opinions though not to the extent of new speculations on both the points to which i have adverted when we had had enough of political economy we took up the syllogistic logic in the same manner grote now joining us our first textbook was aldrich but being disgusted with his superficiality we reprinted one of the most finished among the many manuals of the school logic which my father a great collector of such books possessed the macanunitu ad logicam of the jesuit du Trier. after finishing this we took up whateley's logic when first republished from the encyclopedia metropolitana and finally the Computato sive logica of hobbes these books dealt with in our manner afforded a high range for original metaphysical speculation and most of what has been done in the first book of my system of logic to rationalize and correct the principles and distinctions of the school logicians and to improve the theory of the import of propositions had its origin in these discussions graham and i originated most of the novelties while grote and others furnished an excellent tribunal or test from this time i formed the project of writing a book on logic though on a much humbler scale than the one i ultimately executed having done with logic we launched into analytic psychology and having chosen hartley for our textbook we raised priestley's edition to an exaggerated place by searching through london to furnish each of us with a copy when we had finished hartley we suspended our meetings but my father's analysis of the mind being published soon after we reassembled for the purpose of reading it with this our exercises ended i have always dated from these conversations my own real inauguration as an original and independent thinker it was also through them that i acquired or very much strengthened a mental habit to which i attribute all that i have ever done or ever shall do in speculation that of never accepting half-solutions of difficulties as complete, never abandoning a puzzle, but again and again returning to it until it was cleared up, never allowing obscure corners of a subject to remain unexplored because they did not appear important, never thinking that I understood any part of a subject until I understood the whole. Our doings from 1825 to 1830 in the way of public speaking filled a considerable place in my life during those years and as they had important effects on my development something ought to be said of them there was for some time in existence a society of owenites called the cooperative society which met for weekly public discussions in chancery lane in the early part of eighteen twenty five accident brought roebuck in contact with several of its members and led to his attending one or two of the meetings and taking part in the debate in opposition to owenism some one of us started the notion of going there in a body and having a general battle and charles austin and some of his friends who did not usually take part in our joint exercises entered into the project it was carried out by concert with the principal members of the society themselves 
nothing loath as they naturally preferred a controversy with opponents to a tame discussion among their own body the question of population was proposed as the subject of debate charles austin led the case on our side with a brilliant speech and the fight was kept up by adjournment through five or six weekly meetings before crowned authorities including among with the members of the society and their friends many hearers and some speakers from the ends of court when this debate was ended another was commenced on the general merits of owen's system and the contest altogether lasted about three months it was a lutticor outscor between owenites and political economists whom the owenites regarded as their most inveterate opponents but it was a perfectly friendly dispute we who represented political economy had the same objects in view as they had and took pains to show it and the principal champion on their side was a very estimable man with whom i was well acquainted mr william thompson of cork author of a book on the distribution of wealth and of an appeal in behalf of women against the passage relating to them in my father's essay on government ellis roebuck and i took an active part in the debate and among those from the inns of court who joined in i remember charles villeners the other side obtained also on the population question very efficient support from without the well-known gale jones then an elderly man made one of his florid speeches but the speaker with whom i was most struck though i dissented from nearly every word he said was thurwall the historian since bishop of st david's then a chancery barrister unknown except by a high reputation for eloquence acquired at the cambridge union before the era of austin and macaulay his speech was in answer to one of mine before he had uttered ten sentences i set him down as the best speaker i had ever heard and i have never since heard any one whom i placed above him the great interest of these debates predisposed some of those who took part in them to catch at a suggestion thrown out by mccullough the political economist that a society was wanted in london similar to the speculative society at edinburgh in which brougham horner and others first cultivated public speaking our experience at the cooperative society seemed to give cause for being sanguine as to the sort of men who might be brought together in london for such a purpose mccullough mentioned the matter to several young men of influence to whom he was then giving private lessons in political economy some of these entered warmly into the project particularly george villeners after earl of clarendon he and his brothers hyde and charles romley charles austin and i with some others met and agreed on a plan we determined to meet once a fortnight from november to june at the freemasons tavern and we had soon a fine list of members containing along with several members of parliament nearly all the most noted speakers of the cambridge union and of the oxford united debating society it is curiously illustrative of the tendencies of the time that our principal difficulty in recruiting for the society was to find a sufficient number of tory speakers almost all of whom we could press into the service were liberals of different orders and degrees besides those already named we had macaulay thirwald prade and lord horwick samuel wilberforce afterwards bishop of oxford charles poulet thomas afterwards lord sindenham edward and henry linton bulwer fontainebleau 
and many others whom I cannot now recollect, but who made themselves afterwards more or less conspicuous in public or literary life. Nothing could seem more promising, but when the time for action drew near, and it was necessary to fix on a president and find somebody to open the first debate, none of our celebrities would consent to perform either office. Of the many who were pressed on the subject, the only one who could be prevailed on was a man of whom I knew very little, but who had taken high honours at Oxford, and was said to have acquired a great oratorical reputation there, who some time afterward became a Tory member of Parliament. He accordingly was fixed in, both for filling the President's chair and for making the first speech. The important day arrived, the benches were crowded, all our great speakers were present, to judge of, but not to help our efforts. The Oxford orator's speech was a complete failure. He threw a damp on the whole concern. The speakers who followed were few, and none of them did their best. The affair was a complete fiasco and the oratorical celebrities we had counted on went away never to return, giving to me at least a lesson in knowledge of the world. This unexpected breakdown altered my whole relation to the project. I had not anticipated taking a prominent part, nor speaking much or often, particularly at first, but I now saw that the success of the scheme depended on the new men, and I put my shoulder to the wheel. I opened the second session, and from that time spoke in nearly every debate. It was very uphill work for some time. The three Vilners and Romley stuck to us for some time longer, but the patience of all the founders of the society was at last exhausted, except me and Roebuck. In the season following, 1826-7, things began to mend. We had acquired two excellent Tory speakers, Hayward and She afterwards sergeant she the radical side was reinforced by charles buller cockburn and others of the second generation of cambridge benthamites and with their and other occasional aid and the two tories as well as roebuck and me for regular speakers almost every debate was a bagatelle rangée between the philosophic radicals and the tory lawyers until our conflicts were talked about and several persons of note and consideration came to hear us this happened still more in the subsequent sessions eighteen twenty eight and eighteen twenty nine when the coleridgeans in the persons of maurice and sterling made their appearance in the society as a second liberal and even radical party on totally different grounds from benthamism and vehemently opposed to it bringing into these discussions the general doctrines and modes of thought of the european reaction against the philosophy of the eighteenth century and adding a third and very important belligerent party to our contests which were now no bad exponent of the moment of opinion among the most cultivated part of the new generation our new debates were very different from those of common debating societies for they habitually consisted of the strongest arguments and most philosophic principles which either side was able to produce thrown often into close and serre confrontations of one another the practice was necessarily very useful to us and eminently to me i never indeed acquired real fluency and had always a bad and ungraceful delivery but I could make myself listen to, and as I always wrote my speeches when, from the feelings involved, or the nature of the ideas to be developed, expression seemed important. 
I greatly increased my power of effective writing, acquiring not only an ear for smoothness and rhythm, but a practical sense for telling sentences, and an intimate criterion of their telling property, by their effect on a mixed audience. The society and the preparation for it, together with the preparation for the morning conversations, which were going on simultaneously, occupied the greater part of my leisure, and made me feel it a relief when, in the spring of 1828, I ceased to write for the Westminster. The review had fallen into difficulties, though the sale of the first number had been very encouraging. The permanent sale had never i believe been sufficient to pay the expenses on the scale on which the review was carried on those expenses had been considerably but not sufficiently reduced one of the editors southern had resigned and several of the writers including my father and me who had been paid like other contributors for our earlier articles had latterly written without payment nevertheless the original funds were nearly or quite exhausted and if the review was to be continued some new arrangement of its affairs had to become indispensable my father and i had several conferences with bowring on the subject we were willing to do our utmost for maintaining the review as an organ of our opinion but not under brownring's editorship while the impossibility of its any longer supporting a paid editor afforded a ground on which without affront to him we could propose to dispense with his services we and some of our friends were prepared to carry on the review as unpaid writers either finding among ourselves an unpaid editor or sharing the editorship among us but while this negotiation was proceeding with browning's apparent acquiescence he was carrying on another in a different quarter with colonel pernay thompson of which we received the first intimation in a letter from bowring as editor informing us merely that an arrangement had been made and proposing to us to write for the next number with promise of payment we did not dispute bowring's right to bring about if he could an arrangement more favourable to himself than the one we had proposed but we thought the concealment which he had practised toward us while seemingly entering into our own project an affront and even had we not thought so we were indisposed to expend any more of our time and trouble in attempting to write up the review under his management accordingly my father excused himself from writing though two or three years later on great pressure he did write one more political article as for me i positively refused and thus ended my connection with the original westminster the last article which i wrote for it cost me more labour than any previous but was a labour of love being a defence of the early french revolutionists against the tory misrepresentations of mr walter scott in the introduction to his life of napoleon the number of books which i read for this purpose making notes and extracts even the number i had to buy for in those days there was no public or subscription library from which books of reference could be taken home far exceeded the worth of the immediate object but i had at that time a half-formed intention of writing a history of the french revolution and though i never executed it my collections afterwards were very useful to carlyle for a similar purpose End of chapter 4, part 3. Recording by Gary Gilbert.